Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. My guest on today's episode was Jason Sweat, and I was totally planning on giving him a hard time by making some joke about whether people asked if he was related to Keith Sweat. But A, uh, Jason's last name is spelled differently, and B, I don't think... Sweat is Keith Sweat's real last name. And C, Jason looked a little bit younger than me, and I'm not sure he would have gotten the joke in the first place. I don't know. It was maybe uh, six weeks or something ago, and Jason sent me a fantastic email that has been haunting me ever since. He asked some very basic, very prudent, very sensible questions about whether I have any examples of people who have specialized vertically where their choice about the specialization was not a, a function or byproduct of previous experience or something they've just sort of stumbled into. And it's sort of haunted me because I actually don't have a ton of great evidence right now or in the form of examples of people who've done that. Most of the people I speak to who have successfully specialized vertically have done so where their choice about how to specialize is a subset of previous experience, previous client work. In other words, they're doing what I call finding their head start and building on that. There are circumstances under which it is potentially prudent to capture an opportunity nobody else is really going after or very few other people are, are going after, and that might involve specializing in a vertical where you have no previous experience. But this approach is risky. It's only suitable for people who have a pretty high, what I call a risk profile, which is a combination of a lot of comfort with risk and an ability to sustain a negative, the negative consequences of making a decision that doesn't work out. That's not, I suspect, uh, most of us. And I say I suspect because I haven't, of course, interviewed all self-employed people or all self-employed software developers, so I can't know for sure. But I believe the qualities that make a uh, choosing a market vertical where you've got no experience, no connections, no credibility, it's possible to do, but the qualities that make that a prudent choice are primarily having a, a very high risk tolerance and really being able to work at it. So that's perhaps the one-minute summary of some of the high points of the conversation that Jason and I had. And it was a conversation that I was really looking forward to and really enjoyed. And unfortunately, because I had an adjacent call on the calendar, it didn't get to go as long as I would like. Uh, I've already got a note to have Jason back either to continue this conversation or do something else interesting, which is to hear from him about his transition from what I would call a generalist uh, Rails developer. He might um, disagree with that, and he's, he's entitled to do that, but I would say a generalist Rails developer. He's transitioning out of that into focusing on training. So I want to catch up with Jason, circle back, and uh, either continue this conversation or check in on that other aspect. All that to say that there was a lot of good stuff here in this conversation that I, I didn't feel like we we got to fully explore, but I wanted to put this conversation in front of you 
because it, we touch on some stuff that I have seen to be very important in the work that I do with folks, and, and it's this element of risk and and how you go about making this decision about how to specialize. So hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation with Jason Sweat as much as I did. Jason Sweat, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Jason, who are you and what do you do? So I am a software developer. I've been a uh, an employee and then in 2011, I first went freelance and I've been freelance on and off um, in the years since then. Currently, I am working on making a transition from being a contract developer, uh, working by the hour into corporate training and product income. It's so tempting for me to talk to you for the rest of our conversation today about training because I have such a soft spot for that. And I think it's a great way for developers to maybe just diversify income or maybe move into more profitable work. But we're not going to do that. <laughs> um some time ago, you wrote an email to me that had this question that's just like haunted me. Mm -hmm. And so um, our mutual friend, Jonathan Stark, said, well, hey, let's record a three-way podcast where we talk about that question. And then Jonathan had something. I think his refrigerator died or something. He's probably shopping Doesn't for Doesn't like us. <laughs> Maybe that's really what it is. But he told us that he's shopping for refrigerators. So... He's not on the show today, but uh, you are. And so we just went ahead with it. So what I wanted to do is kind of get you to verbally um, reiterate the question. I mean, if you want to read it word for word, that's cool. Or if you want to just summarize it so that the folks at home know what the heck we're talking about. And then I'd love to just have a mm -hmm. conversation with you uh, about our various perspectives on that question. Yeah. So I've read um, advice from you and from other people about specialization. There's various kinds of specialization you can do. You can specialize horizontally, meaning you can specialize in, in a technology or something like that, like how I specialize in Ruby on Rails. Yep. Or you can specialize vertically, meaning you pick a specific industry or something like that. Like, um, I don't know, I'm currently working in the cannabis industry, so that's the first example that comes to mind. Sure. Um, but what I have yet to see is an example of somebody who starts off as a generalist developer uh, and then goes through the process of choosing a vertical specialty and then having success with that vertical specialty. Um, and just one one distinction is that the developer part is significant because I've seen designers go through the specialization process mm -hmm. and then have success with it. Uh, but the nature of development work is, is a little bit different. And I think the dynamics are a little bit different when it comes to specialization. Yeah. I mean, to, to drill into that a little bit, we are um, going to get to the larger question here, which is that you're not seeing a lot of evidence that it's feasible to, as a developer, as a, I mean, specifically a self-employed software developer to pick a vertical. And I, th I think this is an important little detail. Um, one that you, maybe you've never worked in before and specialize mm -hmm. in serving that vertical. Is that a pretty accurate, um, I don't know, clarification or addition to what you said. Yeah, I think so. Cause I think sometimes people will stumble into a, a specialization somehow, like, oh, one of my clients happened to be a uh, manufacturing client or something like that. And that's right. how I got started with that. 
it's a little harder to start with nothing and then say, okay, I can do anything in the world. What am I going to pick? That's a little tougher. Right. Yeah. And actually, just to, to give away the punchline here, I agree with what the way you just said it. But I think there's some nuances that we can tease out for the folks at home um, as we kind of get through this. Um, but one one kind of general observation that I share with what you said is it's it seems to be more common for people who are outside the world of world of software development. Um, so that would include people who do marketing and mm-hmm. and design you know in in the sort of world of like tech creatives might be how the umbrella that covers all three of those categories of work mm-hmm. it's more common for the the marketing folks and uh to an extent the design folks than it is for the software development folks to specialize in a vertical mm-hmm. and my theory about that is that developers feel that they are more insulated and abstracted from the specifics of any one client because they, they kind of work in this world of software, which is almost infinitely flexible in what it can do. Yeah. And I've tried to think about this a little bit and I've tried to ask myself the question, why is that? Um, and apparently there's some kind of emergency happening where, where I live right now because <laughs> right, of all the some, sirens. Hospi- some ambulances guesting on the podcast. <laughs> right. Hope everybody's okay. Um, so with a marketer or a designer, let's take a marketing example first real quick. Um, if I do marketing for some industry, I can apply my marketing service to various clients kind of in the same way each time. Like if you have a website that needs to be optimized for lead generation, I'm probably going to kind of go through the same or similar steps of figuring out where your site is weak right now, where are the marketing bottlenecks, and apply my process to your site. Or if I'm a designer, maybe similar kind of thing. But development, it's like, by definition, you're never doing the same thing twice. And if you are, you're doing it wrong. Um, And so maybe that's it, but I'm not sure. That's just the best thing I've been able to come up with so far. I think one of the reasons is that Marketers benefit from understanding their clients, clients or customers more deeply. So to make that like more specific, let's say that, um, that I'm a marketer, uh, which I kind of am, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, let's say that I focused on working with companies who sell to sell luxury fashion items. Okay. The sort of, um, language and imagery and, the the human desires and needs that that my clients are trying to address with their products or services are so different than like let's say um, you know PG and E here in California is like mm-hmm. you know they want they they have some kind of marketing function and but you know they're selling a commodity <laughs> they're selling electricity and natural gas and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's just two different worlds. So the knowledge that I have of my clients' customers is not as portable between those two verticals. Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, that makes a good business case for a marketer specializing. But with a software developer, they're going to say things like, well, you know, code is code and a good user interface and good user experience is good user interface and good user and experience no matter what the software is. 
mm-hmm. it all needs to be like you know intuitive and easy to use and and we're going to do research anyway so we'll discover the particulars about this vertical that we need to know doing our research or yeah you know, like th- those are i think the kinds of thoughts that a software developer has that makes them see specialization as not particularly relevant when you think about vertical specialization and i'm curious is that sort of does that ring true is that sort of how you see it maybe um and just I guess to be clear, my hang up isn't necessarily that like, I don't think it can work. I definitely think it can work. I just haven't seen a lot of examples of other developers going through that process and making it happen for themselves. I know. So I think it's, it would probably be dangerous for me to go down a path of like making a list of all the reasons why it can't work for me, <laughs> because right. that's the kind of thing where if you believe it, then it becomes true. Yeah. So I don't want to like go down that path myself because I, I think that would be like self poisoning to do that. Um, what, what I would love to, to be able to do is to see an example of somebody who, cause this is my philosophy with everything. When I want to try something new, I haven't ever done before. I want to find somebody who's done that thing and then just copy what they did. Cause I've found over the years, the, uh, the painful truth is that, I'm not like, I'm not some kind of business genius. Uh, and so I'm not smart enough to like come up with a new strategy that nobody's ever done mm-hmm. and then figure that out for myself and make it work. Mm-hmm. I need to have somebody else's pattern that I can follow. I might not completely understand everything they do yet, but I know that if I put one foot in front of the other and follow in their footsteps, then I can reasonably expect to achieve what they have achieved. Right. Uh, so that's why I'm always looking for examples. Yeah. And like you, I, I love that pragmatic approach to, you know, um, to building a business. It's like you're, maybe you're special, but you're probably not special in the way mm-hmm. of inventing new wildly successful business models from whole cloth. <laughs> yeah. My experience is whenever I've tried something and it's like, man, nobody's doing this. I'm so smart for thinking of this. I discover six months later, Oh wait, nobody does that. Cause it doesn't work. Yeah. There was a good reason for that. Yeah. So a couple things that I think might be interesting to share from my end of things. Um, first of all is like, I, I was maybe on the fence with a sort of project that I've launched, but your email definitely pushed me over the edge and I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So the project is like, how can we, how can we, without trying to cherry pick examples, see if, if, if there are examples out there that are of the kind that you're looking for examples Mm -hmm. of people who have without, so uh, let me throw out a little terminology, um, for the, for the benefit of this conversation. So there's, there's plenty of people who have picked a specialization that is a subset of their previous experience. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that's not exactly what you were looking for. And and I also get the sense when you say sort of stumbled into a specialization, that's really what you're talking about is. Well, it could be what you're talking about a second ago, like, like picking something from your past experience uh-huh. that is still totally useful and helpful to me because I have, you know, a, a backlog of, of 30 plus past clients and employers who I could draw from and say, okay, this client was in this industry, this client was in this industry, 
And if one of those industries on the list makes sense to focus on, then great. I can use that. So okay. I don't think it matters if it's new. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, great. Well, I'm, I'm going to walk you through the process I use in the first workshop in specialization school, which is a systematic process for doing um, what we talked about. But I also uh, I, I want to sort of finish my first thought, which is I, I'm so I have this uh, page on my website. If you go to specializationexamples.com, it's mm-hmm. a domain that gives you a 301 redirect to this page. And so you see a page where I'm starting to catalog examples of businesses that are specialized. They're not all vertically specialized. Some of them are horizontally mm-hmm. specialized. They're not all software developers. Some of them are you know, marketers or branding people or what have you, but they're all specialized. There's actually one. Um, I mean, I, I sort of relish finding weird outliers and throwing uh-huh. them on the list too. So there's one um, company that does uh, consulting for parents who have kids in Montessori schools and want to like kind of more fully embrace this approach to childhood development. Interesting. It's a consultant who who does that. That's still a very interesting specialization. Yeah. So anyway, I'm going through that list. I update the list. I try to update it. Uh, I I try to add three new um, entries each, each weekday. That doesn't happen um, Mm -hmm. all that often, but that's my goal. Because I have a backlog of like 1,500 or so candidates <laughs> to go on this list, and I individually oh, wow. look at each business's website and make an assessment based on their website. I don't talk to anybody at the business usually unless it's somebody I already know. So this mm-hmm. is a big project I'm working on. And what I'm doing is now I've got a sort of database, if you will, and I'm pulling out the ones that are vertically specialized, and I'm reaching out to them and asking them if they'll be on this podcast. Oh, okay. And – you know, as a part of that, I get a much richer sort of understanding if they agree to be on the podcast, which a few of them have. This is, again, I'm kind of pretty early in this project. This is the project that your email sparked, Jason, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm super psyched about it because I think it's great content for this podcast. I think yeah. it teaches people a lot. I'm calling it the Moving the Needle series because I'm okay. very curious to talk to people who vertically specialized, which we know it works. But I'm curious specifically, how do they produce exceptionally valuable results for their their clients because of this vertical specialization? Mm-hmm. Not just because are they a good software developer, are they a good marketer, but are they those things and they have a track record of five, ten, or more years in this vertical, and now they've learned some things about the vertical that combine with their skills to produce really exceptionally valuable results. Mm-hmm. And so as I've talked to people, I have not yet found somebody who fits that category of, well, I just picked this specialization because I'd never worked there, but this other thing seemed compelling about it. Mm-hmm. So here's the sort of the process part of this. If you look at the whole world of self-employed people, uh, we can divide that into two parts. There's people who think this whole specialization idea is – a bad idea or too, you know, too risky or unnecessary or whatever. And they uh-huh. just have rejected the idea. Mm-hmm. Let's look at that second half that's left over. They're interested in specialization. They're like you. They're like, well, I see the benefits um, or I'm curious about it or it seems to make sense, but whatever. We can divide that group into two groups based on their risk, what I call their risk profile. Okay. We, just to use simple terminology, their risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. 
And where we draw the line between those two halves of that group is a bit arbitrary. But let's just say that, you know, some percentage of them are very able to tolerate a lot of risk. They're comfortable with it, like mentally and emotionally. They're like, it doesn't freak them out. Mm-hmm. And they can actually sustain things not going well as a result of decisions they've made. They've got savings mm-hmm. in the bank or they have some reliable long-term client contracts or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right? So they can they can handle – they're comfortable with risk and they can handle things not going well for a while. Yep. So they can tolerate a lot of risk. Everybody else cannot tolerate nearly so much risk. Maybe they're just mm-hmm. simply not comfortable with it, or maybe they have a limited, um, you know, sort of cash reserves, or they, they're in a more fragile financial situation, or just a, a tons and tons of reasons. Yeah. And and none of this, like, neither of these people are better than the other. They're just different in their relationship to risk. Right. The people who cannot handle a lot of risk. What they should probably do in picking a specialization is pick one where they have prior experience. Mm-hmm. They should probably, and when I say probably, I mean lots of things can happen. The world's a very big, complex place. So, you know, especially in the news media, the news media loves fixating on these weird sort of unicorn stories. Uh-huh. And I can't afford to do that as a consultant who makes their living trying to help people make better decisions about specialization. I, we have to work based on, you know, what's what can work and what's mm-hmm. what's a good fit for whoever it is that I'm working with. So um, anyway, there's lots of things that can happen, but that that group of people who can't tolerate much risk are most likely better served by doing what I call finding a head start, meaning. They look for some area in where they've had previous experience with those clients, so they have some level of access, some level of credibility, and some level of insight into that client's world. And that mm-hmm. would be how they choose how to specialize is based on those factors. Okay. But when I'm working with people on this process, I do a risk assessment, and I also I have them make two lists for me. The first list is all the projects you've done in the past, all the clients you've worked with. Mm-hmm. What vertical were they in? Um, how uh, how impactful was your work for them? Did you really move the needle for that client? Did you find it interesting? You know, we look at various factors, mm-hmm. and that's list one. And then list two is go to the, the NAICS table, which is this list of market verticals, and just um, – you know, get in a relaxed place. Make sure you have some time to do this. Make sure you're not under a deadline. And just sort of peruse it and see if there's anything that grabs your interest. Okay. Oh, gosh. I you know, had an uncle who worked in manufacturing, and I always mm-hmm. thought his work was really interesting. Maybe that's a vertical I could focus in. Okay. That kind, it's that kind of thing. It's, it's more like, huh, I just wonder if I would enjoy that. Yeah. That's the second list. But the reality is... If your risk tolerance is relatively on the lower end of the spectrum, you're probably going to – it would probably be disastrous to try to focus on an item from that second list, which, again, is the list of stuff that you've never worked in before but is interesting to you. Because you don't have the experience and connections. Exactly. So you're starting mm-hmm. 
you're not starting with a head start. But if you can tolerate a lot of risk and you're really driven, then you can do whatever you want when it comes to specialization because what will make it work is not your previous experience or your network or anything like that. What will make it work is your desire to make it work. And, you know, that's the sort of entrepreneurial story, right? Is someone, yeah. especially the kind that's depicted in the media is like against all odds, they made this thing work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would never recommend that to someone who has a very limited risk tolerance because yeah. it's going to set them up for failure. Yeah. And it's even, it's not just risk tolerance. It's like work tolerance. Like it seems like 90% of entrepreneurs and consultants and people like that who fail, it's not because some external factor killed their efforts is because they just, for whatever reason, weren't motivated to put in the work and the work that it takes. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the success stories, the ones who survive that, you know, that massive, um, uh, experience, they can see the opportunity of being the, the one who survived, <laughs> you know, everything that can go wrong. And once you're there, you're in this sort of unassailable, very desirable market position where you're a leader, you're the only one who really, you know, you're like the go-to person for that. But I think right. you're absolutely right. Like what it takes to get there, most people don't have the stomach for it, quite frankly. Yep. Or, you know, they they don't have enough dissatisfaction with their current position in life or whatever it is. Like for me, I'm, I'm motivated personally. I'm motivated by pain. I don't like to sit at the computer all day and, and be basically an employee. And so I'm trying as hard as I can to, to figure out how to make something work and, and escape, uh, uh, wage slavery for lack of a better way to put it. Um, but I realize that not everybody has that kind of, uh, pain driven motivation. Well, and I, I think some people would, uh, and it, I agree with what you said 100%. That's kind of a lot like me. But other people would find what we do incredibly painful. And they would be like, why the heck don't you go the easy way, the pain-free way, which is just get a job and let somebody else figure out all that sales and marketing and positioning stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that too. But um, I think – and I, you know, I, I have, this is not the first time I've confessed to this. I, th I confessed to earlier, you know, years ago being more naive about this and saying, well, what is probably the most desirable market position is this market leadership position where you're really the only option in this category. And, um, and, and, and what I've realized is that that is, that road is far too risky for most people. And there's really good uh, ways to do what specialization accomplishes, which is give, give you an expertise advantage and help you address marketing inefficiencies. Those are really the two main things that ex that specialization does. There's way to do, ways to do that without it being quite so risky. So for me personally, I'm not super like risk intolerant. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty comfortable with what other people perceive as risks. Mm -hmm. Like, just a non-business example. When I was 23, I moved from Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I was living to Austin, Texas, just cause I wanted to. 
Nice. And I would tell people that and they're like, wow, you're so brave. (laughs) I'm like brave. I'm not brave. I just don't see it as a big deal. Right. Um, and so for me, it's, it's not that I'm comfortable with risk necessarily. It's that I don't see as a risk things that a lot of people do see as a risk, like uh, quitting your job or changing jobs or moving across the country or whatever. I just don't see that as a very big deal. What's I, I like to literally ask this question, not rhetorically, but ask it and then actually answer it, which is what's the worst that could happen. And usually if you actually answer that question, uh, okay, I'll, you know, get evicted and have to move back in with my parents or something like that. And then I'll eventually like figure it out and move back out of my parents' house and things will be perfectly okay again. Uh, so the worst case scenario usually isn't that bad. So my biggest fear when, when undertaking any kind of venture is spending, and I've done this, spending years and years going down a path that is doomed from the start, never to work out. I have done that and I never want to do that again. Yeah. But you just, you described a job essentially. Like if, if workout is produce exceptional returns the way an entrepreneur would want to to see Mm -hmm. the thing you described as risky is, is the, the thing that most people choose as a low risk option, which is having a job. Yeah. At least from my perspective. So just, um, we're gonna have to wrap up in about two, three minutes here, but just a few quick reflections on that, Jason. Um, Mm -hmm. You described a bunch of activities that if you go search for on Google list of the most stressful life events, Uh they're in the top 10 moving, interesting, uh, leaving your family, uh, starting a new business. And I think the reason that they're, uh, experienced as so uh, stressful by so many people is because they are risky. And so um, I I would say that the way you see the world is sounds pretty risk. Um, You're not risk averse is what is how it's coming across to me. Yeah. I'd want to ask you some questions about how you would invest money not how you actually do, but how you would and how you would perceive uh, losses versus gains to get a clearer <laughs> picture of this. Yeah. But, um, which we don't have time to do and I'm not going to put you on the spot that way anyway, but I think you might be more risk tolerant than you think. Yeah, you might be right. For me, the big, biggest risk would be to, to never accomplish anything and have to spend 30 to 40 years chained to a desk. And most people, as long as they didn't suffer a loss doing that, would be perfectly happy with that deal. They yeah. might they might complain about it, but they won't put any action into actually changing it. And I'm, I'm not here to beat up on people who are not self-employed. I'm just mm-hmm. – I, I really am trying to be objective when we talk about risk. So um, I don't know where that leaves us, and I, I'm so sorry I have this adjacent – like we, this could be such a great longer conversation. I think that's okay. Maybe we can have a part two. Yeah. I think you can definitely at least uh, expect to hear me invite you back to hear how the transition to training is going. Cause that's also yeah. something I'd really love to talk to you about. Definitely. Jason, I, just by way of wrapping up, I want to say thank you so much. This is an important question and I don't think either of us is like totally right or wrong here. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I just appreciate you voicing it because it, it surfaces a lot of interesting stuff that I hope the audience has enjoyed hearing us talk about. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been good talking with you.
uh, would it be possible for folks to learn more about you or reach out or get in touch? Is there a way they can go find you online? Sure. So I'll share two websites. One is codewithjason.com. That's where I, I write about Ruby related stuff. Um, and then kind of a more personal blog is jasonsweat.net. So Jason, S-W-E-T-T dot net. Um, I talk about how things are going, things that I wouldn't uh, want to be client facing and stuff like that. You can kind of see under the hood by going to that site. Super. Jason, thanks for being here on the show today. Thank you.